everybody. Welcome to Daniel Davis Deep Dive. We are coming live from Washington, D.C. again, and we, as always do, we have a great show for you today. And as you see, we have the, the amazing Douglas McGregor uh, back here again with us. And uh, we, we're going to talk about some things as we do on Deep Dive. One of the reasons we even have this show is because it, we want to give people a no kidding understanding of what's going on in here, not just sound bites that you may hear on some networks or so. And man, is this ever going to be one of the bigger ones? The president of the United States spoke from the Oval Office last night and by itself, that that uh, venue really shows the seriousness of an issue. And, and he was asking for money for Ukraine and for Israel. And we're going to get into all that here, but we want you to understand what's really going on. And so you saw what he said, most likely, and we're going to tell you what's behind the scenes that he didn't tell you, what things actually mean and what we need to watch out for. So uh, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the situation specifically in Israel, and we're going to look at things from the tactical perspective, because there's reports that any day now uh, Ukraine could be launching into uh, a ground offensive uh, into the Gaza Strip. And in fact, we had this from the secretary of the minister of defense yesterday. You know, the reason I, I wanted to pick that shot and that uh, clip up is not just to, to show what he said, but actually, if, if you go back and watch that uh, clip, or you probably already seen it, was that it showed him going and talking to his troops and, and telling them, hey, right now you're seeing Gaza from this side of the fence, but very soon the order will be given. And you're going to be from the other side of the, of the fence. And one of the reasons why I want to dug on today is because in my own experience in Desert Storm, just before we launched that big offensive into Iraq, that big armored offensive, Doug came and did that very same thing to us, uh, to all the troops. He went around to everybody and he came and told them what was going on and what the plan was. So everybody knew from the top down. And when I saw that, Doug, I thought of you when you did that for us. Well, the Israeli defense minister uh, got it right. Uh, and he knows this. And the Israeli officers that I've worked with over the years know exactly how problematic this is. I think that's one of the reasons we've seen a delay. Remember, initially, the idea was we mobilize and we straightaway invade. I think the senior military leadership said, no, let's back off and let's prepare ourselves. Because when you go into urban combat, <clears throat> and I'm fortunate that we saw virtually none of it when we were fighting, but when you go into it, you, you have to not simply train differently, but you organize very differently on a tactical level. And today, it's even more complex and challenging than it's ever been before because of new technologies. You know, for instance, the Israelis, I'm sure, will make absolutely certain that there is persistent surveillance overhead. So they'll be able to watch day or night, whatever moves, whatever transpires. At the same time, they'll monitor all the transmissions, whether it's a cell phone or a radio or anything else. And they'll be able to pinpoint those very quickly. And I would expect that the Hamas crowd will do everything they can to try and confuse the Israelis. But ultimately it takes, <clears throat> whether we like it or not, not a set of robots to sort of mindlessly climb through the debris because that's not going to go very well. It's going to take men. And that's his bottom line message. And he's right. Uh, the worst part is, of course, they've demolished uh, these areas. It would have been better had they left right. these buildings in, intact, but now it's demolished. 
even so, the Israelis have done these kinds of things before. They've done it in Lebanon. They've done it on the West Bank. They know how dangerous it is, how easy it is to booby trap rooms, blow people up, command detonate mines. So this will, I, I'm quite certain, be a nightmare, and I think the Israelis will pay a price. I don't know how high that will be, and I'm sure that they will do what, what we did during the Second World War and, and our opponents did, which is ultimately use firepower as much as possible to keep people alive. You can't just send <clears throat> infantry in with some engineers. You have to have standby firepower, which means you need tanks, ideally autocannon, though I don't think the Israelis have very many of those. And those will immediately be brought to bear. And they've done that before. And, and tank fire, of course, is very, very accurate, as you know, much more accurate than anything coming in from above. And I, I would also expect to see some attack helicopters, although perhaps not as much as we have in the past, because we're finding out more and more it's just very easy to eliminate helicopters from the battle space. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. We'll, and, we'll see and, and Doug, I want to see, I want to see your opinion on, on two separate aspects of this. Number one is what do you think will be the initial uh, objectives of the Israelis? Let's say that they break through the fence and like, you know, what is their first, second and third tactical objectives? And then the second part is, what do you think the Hamas side is going to do? What is their objective? Because for sure they have spent months preparing for this. So they're going to have a lot of surprises here. But I want if you could kind of look at it from both sides on the initial uh, incursion. Well, the last time the Israeli Defense Force went into Gaza, they segmented the area. They went on two separate axes straight in almost, uh, you know, directly across the Gaza Strip towards the sea. Uh, they took some prisoners. They were in search for some hostages, as I recall. They did some damage, and they turned around and got out. <clears throat> this time, I would expect that they'll try to clear the entire area, certainly in northern Gaza. And that means that you have to divide it up into grid squares, and you have to accurately assess what you're doing in each one, and as you progress slowly but surely. This is not something you rush. If you rush into it, you're going to lose a lot of people. So I'm sure they're going to be very systematic about it, as, as the Russians were in Chechnya. And like the Russians, I'm sure the Israelis will use lots of firepower to eliminate, you know, discovered threats, if you will. And they so when Russia went into Chechnya in, in the first Chechen war, uh, especially with a lot of their mechanized forces, they had a lot of basically high learning curve and lots of mistakes and lots of losses. Do you think something like that's going to happen with Israel? Well, I think the Israelis will do better at the first shot than the Russians did. We forget that at that time, the Russian army was on the skids and one entire motorized rifle company was so hungry that when they discovered there was food at a railroad station, they jumped out, ran in to get something to eat. You know, it's pretty hard to fight if, you're, if your soldiers are worn out right. and starving. That's not the case anymore. And the second time the Russians went in there, that, that was not the case. We're, we're not going to have that problem with the Israelis. They're well-supplied, well-sustained. The danger is, frankly, that this is 140 square miles for the whole Gaza Strip. If you split that in half, what are you dealing with? Well, you're still dealing with 70 square miles. 70 square miles may not sound like a lot, but it really is when you're being asked to go in there and essentially neutralize it. It, it cleanse it, if you will, of any, any enemy. The enemy, on the other hand, has a freewheeling operation. Now, I'm sure they'll use some of these underground tunnels we've heard about, certainly those that are still usable. But I think we'll find with the Hamas fighters that most of them will stay where they are and fight to the bitter end. They may change firing positions or move around between uh, within a small area. But these people are going to fight to the bitter end. 
I would expect them to behave much like the Imperial Japanese Army. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Now, I, I know in, in studying the, the Battle of Stalingrad, a lot of times the, the Germans went in there and they just bombed all these uh, you know houses and structures and turned it into rubble, thinking that was going to help them. But then the, the Russians actually used a lot of that for defensive positions, actually making it difficult. Is, is the Israeli force going to have some similar problems with the many buildings they've already rubbled? Oh, how will I, they deal with it? I think so. Uh, and, of course, the other thing, let's assume the buildings were still there. <clears throat> they probably would have booby-trapped large numbers of them. So sending somebody in initially would have been problematic. That's where you you know you're at, you have something of an advantage if you can send something robotic into the room. Now this time around, that's probably not going to be an issue because the last time I looked at pictures of the northern half of Gaza, it looked a lot like Dresden after World War II. Right. But this time you're up against the rubble fight, and as we know, that that makes it easier on the defender, harder for the attacker. You can't plot your movement as effectively as you could if those things were intact. But, you know, again, there's no easy way around this. This is ugly. This is dirty. This is nasty. I'm sure people will pretend to surrender and then they'll end up being shot because they didn't surrender. We went through that in the Gulf, as you recollect. recollect. In fact, the first sergeant in Eagle Troop uh, captured some soldiers, uh, took their weapons away, and then suddenly gave them water and said, look, I can't pick you up right now. I'll be back. He showed up. They took him under fire, so he killed them. And I think the Israelis will end up doing a lot of the same thing. So remember, the, there, there's no such thing in this environment as the law of war. I, I, frankly, that's just dead on arrival. These are, these are ruthless terrorists. And as I said, I think most of them will behave like the Imperial Japanese Army did. And we certainly gave them no quarter. Yeah. Now, tell me, what do you think uh, about the duration here? Because the longer this goes on, any Western country, and maybe Israel's a little bit different uh, in that they don't like casualties. And when they start seeing large numbers showing up on the, the TV screens and the social media, it starts to be a problem. And of course, Hamas will do everything they can to extract as many casualties as they can, as you just mentioned in their tactics and way of fighting. How long do you think this might take to actually accomplish Netanyahu's claim that, that he's going to destroy Hamas, not just punish them? And then I also have to deal with that issue of time and casualties. Well, first of all, Hezbollah has made it clear that in the event that the IDF goes into Gaza, they will attack in northern Israel. Hezbollah has about 100,000 fighters. Uh, estimates are 130 to 140,000 rockets and missiles, of which about 40,000 are very accurate, very deadly, very lethal. The others are not so accurate, but of course, if it lands on you, you're dead or certainly badly wounded, <clears throat> that's going to have a big impact. Uh, the Israeli force is not really that large. And this is one of the reasons that I think the Israelis extracted from uh, President Biden the solemn promise that if Hezbollah attacks, we will launch airstrikes in support of the Israelis into southern Lebanon. Now, this, this is another problem, because as soon as Hezbollah attacks, I think the rest of the Muslim world around Israel will begin to organize to fight. And I think it's only a matter of time until the entire region joins the fight against Israel. This is the problem with going into Gaza. And now if that happens while they're fighting in Gaza, how far are you going to get in Gaza? I mean, how many forces are you going to use? I think we're looking at 10,000 initially, but those are 10,000 combat troops. When we say there are almost 500,000 soldiers in the Israeli army, that's misleading because you and I know that less than half of that 
consists of combat troops. Right. How many combat troops can you commit on the two fronts simultaneously? And again, in 1973, they, they were able to essentially hold in, in front of the Egyptian lines because the Egyptians did not advance very far after they crossed the Suez because they just wanted to regain their territory. On the other hand, Syria was a much more serious threat because they were trying to breach the Golan Heights and essentially motor right into central Israel. So they dealt with Syria first, then they turned their attention to Egypt. And that also included air power because at the beginning, air power wasn't very useful because of air defenses. Now, we don't know to what extent the Russians in Syria are going to commit the air defense capabilities under Syrian leadership to fight the Israelis. Okay, so that 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 gets us into part two of this discussion is the operational stuff, and now you're looking here. So there are pros and cons for Hezbollah to actually come in and enter this fight because of the the almost I don't know if it's certainty, but certainly high probability that the U.S. gets involved with that. Uh, but what is it from a, a Hezbollah's perspective? What do you think would would give them the go no go decision? And do they risk having an open war against Israel and against us? Oh, I think so. Uh, I think, first of all, remember, Hezbollah is operating on its own turf. We don't know to what extent they have uh, air defense technology that can neutralize or damage our aircraft. We, we just don't know. We do know that the Russians in Syria uh, absolutely have air defense technology that can do serious damage to us. So that's that's an unknown at this point, but that's part of the operational picture. I don't think there's any question but what Hezbollah will enter. And I think the Israelis will be hard-pressed to deal with them while simultaneously trying to clear things in the south. And then keep something else in mind. Remember that the Israelis themselves created this Hamas mess. They, they stood it up and they bolstered it over time on the assumption that they were splitting the Palestinian opposition in a way that served Israeli interests. Israel's not unique in this. All powers at one time or another have done these kinds of things. But now I think it's backfired very badly. Hamas is no longer the Lone Ranger, and I would expect a serious uprising on the West Bank against the Israeli presence there, as well as uh, fighting in Hamas and fighting against uh, Hezbollah. Yeah, that's my concern, is that if, if Hezbollah does come in, and now then the Israeli defense forces actually have a, an actual two-front war, is then if you know, this so-called axis of resistance actually stands up and it comes in from the West Bank as well, as well as Americans. I've been Iraq and Syria potentially coming under fire from a lot of these groups. I mean, this could get messy really fast. Well, remember, the Egyptians have already committed uh, three or four divisions from their army to the border with Gaza. Uh, oh, actually, I didn't know that. I'm told that they're going to move as many as 300,000 troops to the border. Now, that that may not seem significant, because people will assume, well, they're there to keep the Gazans from pouring into Sinai. Well, perhaps I think that's true. But once they have all those forces there and large numbers of people who are Arabs inside Gaza are dying, how difficult will it be for General Sisi to stay out of this fight when he's going to be pressured by everyone in sight to somehow or another rescue the Arabs in Gaza? And that's just the beginning. We haven't even talked about Jordan. I would be surprised if the King of Jordan can hold his kingdom together very easily because more than half of his population is now Palestinian. So this thing just gets worse the more you look at it. And then, of course, you have the Iranians in the distance, who I think will only operate through their militias. 
I don't think that they will lob theater ballistic missiles at uh, Israel because I think they reasonably expect the Israelis to respond to that with a nuclear weapon. Now, if the Israelis use a nuclear weapon, I think they will they will be in serious trouble because I think the whole world will desert them at that point. So, so then you think that that if this axis of resistance kicks up, Hezbollah comes in, et cetera, but you think that Iran per se will try to stay out of the fray? Yeah, I think directly they will initially. The Turks are the open question right now. We know that they are preparing for the contingency of fighting against Israel and us. And, you you know, you and I talked years ago about all of these films being marketed in Turkey that were breeding hatred for the United States that talked about Turkish yeah. forces resisting the U.S. military in Iraq. Well, this is a this is fertile ground for serious trouble with the Turks. And the Turks are unlike anybody else in the region. They once they commit, if they go to war, they're all in until the bottom bottom is reached in the fight. They will fight like hell. It will not end easily. It won't end quickly, and it may not end at all. It may drag on for a long time. So how do you keep the Turks out, especially when, you know, we shot down one of their drones recently. The Turks would like us out of northern Syria. We've insisted on staying there. We have a 1,000 men up there. I, I would like, like to see them, you know, extricated as opposed to being sacrificed pointlessly. And then, of course, you have the Turks at, at sea. And then we have to add in the Russian uh, variable because the Russians have told the Turks, the Egyptians, and others who are interested in delivering humanitarian aid to Gaza across the beach that they will escort their vessels. So now you have a potential confrontation rearing its head with the Russians. Uh, and the Russians, of course, are not going to sit there quietly if Iran is suddenly attacked. One of the most Dangerous things that I've heard recently from the Hill is people are saying, well, now's the time to do in Iran. You know, this this is insane. And again, we don't understand. And, this, you know, you and I have been over this before. We're not what we were in 1991. Right, right. right. Demographically, we're not the same nation. And uh, the potential for trouble inside the country, in our own country, our own is country. enormous. Now, now, let me ask you this, Doug, because we're we're going to talk about uh, President Biden's speech in just a minute and what that portends for us. But what you're describing here, I know a lot of people are probably listening to this and they're thinking, oh, that, that's fantastical. All those things aren't going to happen. But you and I have also talked about this a number of times over the years, that when a real war gets kicked off, oftentimes it takes on a life of its own. And all these things you're talking about are not only uh, theoretically possible, but many of them can seem, in my view anyway, could be actually probable. I wonder if, before we shift over to, to the strategic and Biden, what do you think that America can do in this volatile situation to prevent it from going out of control? I think the first thing is that I would urge the Israelis not to go into Gaza at this point. Uh, they've killed, I think, by recent tally, 3,000 people inside Gaza, at, at least that many. They killed 1,500 of the Hamas fighters that are uh, that crossed into Israel, which is good news, of course. But the Israelis want blood, and they think that they have the chance to permanently eradicate Hamas. But the truth of the matter is that you and I know that won't happen. Hamas is, after all, principally an idea. Right. It's not just people. Killing an idea is far more difficult than killing people. And again, you know, you start blowing up people's houses just killing exactly. their families. You just breed more enemies. So I think the president is the one who steps up and says, look, we support you. 
and we're going to continue to support you and we'll help you secure Israel, but you cannot go into Gaza and then convene a meeting with the leading powers to sort this out, find a way forward. And again, this means that, that somebody like Mr. Netanyahu, who prides himself on being you know, the uh, minister of Israeli defense as well as its uh, prime minister, and, and basically talks a great game of, I will defeat all of Israel's enemies in perpetuity, uh, he's going to have to face something else, and that is the requirement to sit down and, and ultimately be flexible on some of the issues that Israel has rejected out of hand. Well, now what you just said there makes so much sense, and it is it is absolutely possible to get this contained. And if we prioritize diplomacy over just giving weapons and ammunition and saying we support them, there is a real chance to keep this thing from happening. However, as we saw last night, there was a bit of a problem with that, even that mentality. Uh, first of all, uh, President Biden last night said this. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. Okay, so you see right off that path that he's tying, you know, Hamas and, and Russia and everything else together so that everybody's a bad guy. And that means we have to go after them until Ukraine wins, until IDF has driven Hamas and destroyed them completely. That seems to be the opposite of what you just suggested. Well, this is a, a replay of the George Bush speech on the axis of evil, where he effectively said, you are either with us or you are against us. This is the dumbest thing that you can possibly say or do. I mean, the most intelligent approach when you have to fight anybody is to practice economy of enemies. In other words, find out who the people are that you really don't want to fight, find out what their interests are, and find a way to keep them out. And at the same time, focus your attention exclusively on the individual or individuals that you're trying to destroy. If you go back through history and you look at all the statesmen that were successful, they did this. Even George Bush Sr. understood this very well and did a brilliant job of isolating Iraq in 1990. And that's one of the reasons that things came off the way they did, as imperfect as they may have been at the end for reasons of failed generalship, I would argue, not because of President uh, Bush at the time. But the bottom line is that's not what's happening. He's essentially saying the same thing. And he talked about his axis of evil. His axis of evil is Iran, Russia, and China are our enemies. Well, that's fascinating. We're doing a, a land office business, even as I sit here with China. The Chinese have no interest and have never expressed any interest in fighting us. The Chinese aren't taking any aggressive actions. This is a lot of nonsense. They never stopped a commercial ship. The only thing we should be worried about is commercialism. In other words, doing business. That's our principal interest. But all right. of this fits in with this uh, sort of neocon globalist approach that says, if you don't look like us, if you, if you don't live like us, if you don't have a government like us, you're the enemy. Well, we're going to be busy for a very long yeah. time. We are. And so, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, drafting off of that, uh, Biden also said, uh, here's what he said. Actually, Gary, if you could play uh, number three on this one. For 75 years, NATO has kept peace in Europe and has been the cornerstone of American security. And if Putin attacks a NATO ally, we will defend every inch of NATO which the treaty requires and calls for. We'll have something that we do not seek. Make it clear, we do not seek. We do not seek to have American troops fighting in Russia or fighting against Russia. Beyond Europe, we know that our allies and maybe most importantly our adversaries and competitors are watching. They're watching our response in Ukraine as well. 
And if we walk away and let Putin erase Ukraine's independence, would-be aggressors around the world be emboldened to try the same? The risk of conflict and chaos could spread in other parts of the world, in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, especially in the Middle East. So what say you, Doug? Is that true that uh, if we don't stand firm and, and just keep fighting in Ukraine, if we don't do everything to make sure that Israel destroys Hamas here, that our enemies across the world are going to see that as weakness and move into us? What do you say? In the 1990s, <clears throat> NATO ceased to be a defensive alliance. It had no raison d'etre. Uh, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Most of us thought that the, the NATO alliance, if we're going to retain it at all, should be viewed as something that prevents any further wars from breaking out in Europe. We turned around, weaponized NATO, and hurled it at the Serbs over Kosovo, which was not really necessary. We could have achieved a settlement there without killing anybody. And a lot of, a lot of people knew that. But there was a desire in Washington to be righteous and moral and punish the evil Serbs. We have this passion for demonizing anybody who doesn't cooperate with us or won't agree with us and turning them into this sort of anti-democratic element that has to be expunged. So the whole idea of, of alliances keeping us safe doesn't make any sense anymore because yesterday's friends are not all our friends anymore. And yesterday's enemies, in some cases, have become our friends. We live in a world of shifting interests. Uh, we should be looking at the rest of the world as what I would call limited liability partners. Sometimes it makes sense for them to cooperate with us and for us to cooperate with them, but we don't really need permanent enemies, and there are only rarely do we have permanent friends. Hey, you got, George Washington said that we don't need permanent friends or enemies, exactly, because our, our power can keep us safe. We don't need to have to tie it to anybody else, and then uh, certainly not to fight everybody else's war like they like he's wanting to, especially with, with Ukraine and potentially well, with Taiwan. That's not our job. This is the, the kindergarten school of uh, statesmanship. Roll out the old worn out tropes from 1941, 42, 43, repackage them and try to mobilize the country one more time to do something utterly stupid and involve itself in a war that it doesn't need to fight. That's the I think, uh, I think Mr. Netanyahu is doing something similar in Israel. I mean, he's essentially saying it's, it's my way, Netanyahu's way, or the highway. And that kind of approach is going to, I think, be ruinous for Israel. Israel knows that it lives in an environment where it has very few friends, if any. And you, you want to avoid conflict as much as possible. Now, what, what Netanyahu and, and others have tried to do is manipulate the, the opponent, you know, build up Hamas in the hopes that you can split the Palestinians and even manipulate them into conflict with each other. Sounds great. Lots of powers have done it. It always fails. And it's failed right here. Uh, so I think they need a fresh approach. But of course, if you regard any compromise whatsoever with your identified opponent, uh, then as essentially unacceptable, you're locked into perpetual conflict. And I think that's where we're headed right now. It's not going to be perpetual. It's going to last until the sides are exhausted. And I, I fear that Israel will be destroyed. Well, and maybe even something else might be precipitating that problem uh, because that one of the key uh, anchors of Biden's speech last night was he wants another hundred billion dollars to go to all these various causes after 113 billion from 2022 went to Ukraine alone. And the question is, can America afford to be doing this? Now, Biden said during his speech 
that mm-hmm. all of these these things we've been given in the drawdown authority, like they're just in storage, like it doesn't even count. But that stuff's coming out of our war material and our ammunition, and that's making our capacity lower. Now you're talking about sending more of it out there, and all that's going to do is continue to erode our own national security. Now, if we can even get this money, do you think that the Congress is going to provide it? And if so, how long do you think this money trough can keep going? Well, the, the Congress is going to do what it's always done, which is uh, make a lot of noise and complain and ultimately do nothing, which is why most Americans have grown fed up with both Republicans and Democrats, because they don't uh, seem to care what the impact is here at home on the population. Uh, this business of uh, entangling alliances is a disaster for us. We no longer need it, uh, but we pretend uh, that Madeleine Albright is still alive and, and that we're still the indispensable nation. Well, for 5,000 years, nobody missed us. And after we leave, uh, the rest of the world will go back to the way it's been before. Unfortunately, that's the way things work. You, you know, we move into a region, we distort the no- regional dynamics, we create an artificial construct. Look what's happening in Kosovo. It's not surviving. Yeah. And, you know, Doug, what you said a second ago is, is so true because it, it's not that you have to have a permanent alliance everywhere. It's that you have the LLC, like you just suggested. When it makes it in our interest, let's have a cooperation here. That Not having these permanent alliance doesn't mean that we're going to like become isolationist and disappear from the world. It means we're going to have selective engagement where it benefits us and then not. It's entirely uh, reasonable. Well, you've also pointed to something else, and that is the, the expense. Uh, this is absurd. If you look at the treasury market right now, the Chinese are selling our treasuries, our treasury bonds uh, at a horrendous rate, more than anybody else in the world. Right now, as far as our bonds are concerned, uh, there's a supply, but there's not much demand. In fact, there's almost no demand. Historically, the Fed has stepped in and bought these bonds up. Well, the Fed has got an enormous toxic waste dump on its books. Of, of useless, lousy uh, capital uh, investments that are worth nothing. They're trying to offload them. Well, you can't offload them when the people overseas are not going to buy up your debt and finance you. So we've got serious problems economically. We've got serious problems financially. This is all going to come home to roost in, a, in what is less than a perfect storm, obviously, but it'll be a storm. And as a result, committing us to an open-ended war at this stage, especially since Israel to a large extent, depends on our friendship. It would make more sense for the president to step up and say, this is bad timing. This is not a good time. We are not strong as we once were. We've sacrificed much of our strength. We have our own problems to deal with. You've got to back down and look for an alternative solution that doesn't involve a regional war. I mean, it's not an unreasonable request if you're the United States, but nobody's thinking like that. Now, there's one other point I want to make. It. Sure. You, you will understand this very well. We have put naval power offshore. Naval power offshore in the final analysis has a marginal to no impact ashore. Everyone ashore, whether it's in southern Lebanon, the West Bank, Jordan, Egypt, the Sinai, they're not all quivering in their boots, worried about uh, B-52s and others flying over. I mean, we B-52 struck the Serbs repeatedly, never hit a damn thing. The Serbs left before they got a chance to enjoy the bombing. Uh, We've been down this road before. It's not going to change anything. We don't have a ground force to send. 
That's the bottom line. Ground forces ultimately change the equation. And that's what the Israelis, I would argue, are probably going to need once this regional war really expands. And where are we going to get them? You know how long it takes to build an army. We've gotten some harsh lessons in Ukraine about how difficult that is. We can't do it quickly enough to make any difference. We can't even get people to voluntarily enlist in the army. And the people they're taking in are hardly the people that the American people would want in their military. So it's a it's a huge problem. You look at the people at the top of the military, you listen to their comments. I wouldn't want to join that organization if I had to listen to that nonsense from Austin and this new uh, chairman. I didn't think much of what Millie had to say. So it, that's the other sort of ticking time bomb in this mix. We we can't put the forces ashore to fundamentally change the geostrategic picture. All yeah, you know, Doug, I, I have seen bombs. all over the Western media, uh, just all over it, this this reflexive, you know, I support, I stand behind Israel and certainly understand that they, they are, you know, the, the best democracy in the, in the Middle East and they have been our friends for a long time. That's fine. But my problem is with, when we say that reflexively, we don't think about all these things you just mentioned and the potential for dragging us into a war that could perversely lay the groundwork for getting them in more harm, as opposed to what you suggested saying, Hey, you're going to have to limit yourself. Our power is not unlimited. And this could draw into a get you a two front war and possibly even more. And your interest could be even more harmed than doing what you suggested, which was let's basically seal off these guys and, and use, you know, not go in, try to have some kind of negotiated settlement or or whatever it needs to look like that doesn't result in even more harm to the Israeli uh, country. Well, you often uh, make this analogy. You talk about the outbreak of the first war. And what made the First World War a world war was Britain's decision to enter it. Had the British stayed out of it, it would have been a regional war. And probably the British were in a position to intervene and help negotiate an end to it. Instead, they joined it. And as a result, tens of millions of people died. The, the war lasted almost five years. It was a catastrophe. I see us in a very similar position. And the British at the time had no army. Well, yeah, they had an army of, what, 250,000, of which they could send 150,000 to France. Well, that was pitiful. It was too small. It, it, it fought very hard. It tried very hard. It was almost completely exterminated. When it was over, the British could not control more than 20 miles of the front versus the Germans. Everything else was left to the French, who by then had lost 600,000 casualties or more. This is, this is not exactly the same. Nothing ever is historically. Right. But it's a similar event that stepping into this almost guarantees that we're going to get a regional war. If we were to take a different position, as we've discussed, because we are, we are concerned about Israel. We want Israel to survive. We have two Absolutely. camps. Now. One says, let's kill everybody who doesn't like Israel. We can do that. The other camp says, wait a minute. This this you know economy of enemies. We don't have to have a regional war. We can come to some sort of solution. Well, we've chosen, let's kill all of Israel's enemies for it. Well, and, and by the way, that means we have a lot more enemies than we've already got. And uh, we don't really want that. But no one's, no one's approaching it this way. And then when you say, well, I, I'm, I'm opposed to this. I don't think this is a good idea. Well, you're anything from a traitor to an anti-Semite to a bigot or some other stupid thing. And uh, this is not going to work. This is going to end very badly. So I continue to hope that uh, the bloodlust in uh, Israel will subside and there'll be some smarter people emerge who say, no, nope, this is 
we've got to we've got to re-examine this whole thing. But I don't think it's going to happen, and I don't see any evidence that anybody in Washington is thinking. Yeah, it's all reaction and emotion. Yeah, that's that's the the biggest thing right there is that and we're by the way, the people, by the way, the other people who are emoting just as badly are the Muslims in the region. They're watching all of these photographs and film footage come in, and they see Muslims being murdered and killed. In their view, there there's no thinking anymore. It's emotion, emotion, emotion. That's Somebody I mean. somewhere along the line has to think. And unfortunately, Doug, I'm, I guess we're going to have to leave it there right now. We're out of time here, but I'm so grateful for you to come in. These, I, I hope I hope everybody watching this sh shares this video far and wide. This is the kind of analysis that you're not seeing anywhere else that America desperately needs. This kind of thinking that Doug's talking about here is what can keep us out of a war and can keep Israel safe and actually mean it. We go down the path we're on now everybody's in a much worse condition. And we, as Doug says, the chances of a regional war are high and through the roof. Thanks for coming on, Doug. We really appreciate having you. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. And uh, we will see you next time. And hopefully we'll see Doug back here real soon. See you guys next time.